Father, I thank You for the precious anointing of God on my life to preach the Gospel. And Daddy, I'm thanking You this morning that You have surrounded this ministry by people that have appetites for grace and the unconditional love of God. So Daddy, we thank You. Your Word is powerful and effective. And it never fails. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, 405 years ago, something very significant happened. It was the year 1611. It was the year that the King James Bible was printed for the first time. 20 years later, 1631, a man by the name of Robert Barker, along with his colleague Martin Lucas, they were the Royal Printers of London. They decided to reprint the King James Bible. It had already been in circulation for 20 years. And so that's all they set out to do was just do a reprint. Instead of it ending up as the Holy Bible, it ended up being called the Wicked Bible. I need to explain it, I'm sure. Some people nicknamed it the Sinner's Bible. Some called it actually the Adulterer's Bible. You see, what had happened is when they printed it, they left out one word. I mean, if you were to search from cover to cover, there were no mistakes other than one place, one word, was missing, and it was totally accidental. It was a three-letter word. You say, was it the word God? No, it wasn't God. You say, was it the word one? No, it wasn't one. Who, how, why, but, none of those. It was the word not. N-O-T. And you think, well, what's the big deal of leaving out one word? Well, it depends on where you leave it out of. In this case, it was left out of Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. And without that word not in there, it literally read this way, thou shalt commit adultery. So do you see why it was called the Wicked Bible? This Bible was actually in circulation for about a year before this problem and this error was discovered. King James had a fit. He ordered that all these Bibles be destroyed just because of that one error. Only 12 of those Bibles are known to have survived. Most of them are in museums, or if, if a church has them in kind of a protected library of some sort, about every hundred years or so, what they'll do is they'll bring out those Bibles under a glass case, put them on display, and they'll open it right up to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. Anybody and everybody who wants to come by can take a look. That's exactly what happened back then. So that error cost these two respected publishers their license. It was an accident. They had to pay enormous fines, and their reputation as printers was absolutely ruined. So you say, Pastor Mark, what are you trying to say? What is the point you're trying to make here? Simply this. Like the Wicked Bible, sometimes we do things, or we say things, or we think things that uh, we don't mean to think or do or say. But you know what, friends? Under this covenant of grace, God does not take away our license when we mess up. We call it salvation. God does not take away our salvation when we mess up. God is not out to find us and say, okay, now you did this, you're going to have to pay this price. God doesn't do that. And God doesn't take our names out of the Lamb's book of life when we mess up. He generously gives us another opportunity to begin again and again and again. Thank God for grace. This is the covenant that we have with God, and it's through His Son, Jesus Christ. And as a result, the Holy Spirit has sealed us with this ever-increasing 
grace. And that is really the word I want to minister for a little while this morning as I minister through a message I'm calling Ever Increasing Grace. The inspiration actually for this message comes out of Romans chapter 5 and the last two scriptures are verse 20 and verse 21. But I want to back up to verse 18 where I've spent some time the last time I ministered. And it says this, Consequently, just as the one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, that's Adam, right? Just through the disobedience of the one man, we were all made sinners, the Bible says. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. These two scriptures that you see, 18 and 19 right there, they're telling us very clearly that what one person does affects people down the road. It's saying that what Adam did affected us. It injected sin into the human bloodstream. But what Christ did affected us more profoundly. We'll see that in a couple of minutes here. We did nothing to become a sinner. I'm not a sinner now. I was at one time. You're not either. But we did nothing to become a sinner. It was handed down through a domino effect from Adam. You know, I've heard ministers preach this before. They say, you're not a sinner until you do your first sinful action. Friends, that is simply not true. That's not even in the Word. You see, it's not what you do that makes you the sinner. It's the sinful nature that makes you do what you do. Does that make more sense to you? It's that compelling on the inside of us. It's our very nature. So in like manner, we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ, of course. Apart from any contribution, Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. So Adam's disobedience brought condemnation for all men and injected, as we, what we know, the curse into humanity, right? He brought the curse into humanity. However, we are freed from the curse through that one act of righteousness through Jesus Christ the Lord. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. In other words, he took upon himself the curse for our three-letter mistake. It wasn't the same as the printer's mistake, but it was a three-letter mistake. It's called sin. And he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone that is hung on a tree. He hung on a tree and he did it with you and me in mind. He hung on that tree, and he was saying he became a curse. You know, there's actually a scripture in the Bible that says his visage was marred. It literally says he didn't look human. If you would talk to any paramedic, as awful as some of the things they've had to respond to, they would still say, I can still tell it's a human being, whether it's an accident or whatever it may be. I can still tell it's a human being. It's not a cow, not a pig. It's a human. I can tell. It's all messed up, but I can tell. But the Bible says Jesus didn't even look human. How do you explain that? Friends, this is beyond whipping. This is beyond crucifixion and nailing. I mean, the thieves were whipped and nailed too. When he took the curse upon him, he took every sickness, every disease, every tumor, every form of cancer, every leukemia, every single thing that's out there. He took all that up on his flesh all at one time. That's why his visage was marred. That's why he looked the way he looked. I'm in the Word. It literally says he didn't look like a human being. Friends, I want to tell you something. Unlike Robert Barker and Martin Lucas, believers can never, ever lose their reputation in Christ. 
You can never lose your reputation in Christ. Is that good news? That's good, really good news. Here's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. I love how this starts off. It says, and the God of all grace. You know how kids will wrap their hands around all the toys and they just say, all mine, all mine. Come on, moms, talk to me here a second. They'll just, this is all mine. All grace belongs to God. You don't have any grace outside of God. The Bible says, and the God of all grace. So if, there's, if it's got grace in it, it came from God, okay? And the God of all grace. I love this. It says, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Now, I want you to make note of that. It said to his eternal, he called you. He called you. He called you. He called you to his eternal glory in Christ. It's not contingent glory. Did it say contingent glory? No, it said eternal glory. Did he call it fading glory? No, he didn't call it fading glory. Did he call it departing glory? Nope, didn't call it departing glory. He called it his eternal glory in Christ. And it was because of grace that God was able to call you into this eternal glory in Christ. It says, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you? Watch what he says. He's gonna restore you. He's gonna make you strong and firm and steadfast. Now that's what God said. He's I'm going to do to you. So I'm going to make you strong. I'm going to make you firm. And I'm going to make you steadfast because you are inside my eternal glory. Verse 11. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. I mean, what do you say to something like that? To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen means so be it. Have your way, God. That's what it means. I love verse 12. And he says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that, that what? <laughs> that this is the true grace of God. What's the true grace of God? Did I miss something here? He said, I've written to you to tell you that this is the true grace of God. What? What's the true grace of God? Eternal glory in Christ. What are you saying? Now listen, if any man is preaching any other word than you have eternal life, in Jesus, that is not the grace of God. He said, because the grace of God is you have eternal life in glory in Christ. And then I love how he finishes it off. He says, stand fast in it. Do you like that, Brother Steve? Stand fast. You can't stand fast in something until you realize you're steadfast. When you get the revelation that he's made you steadfast, you'll be able to stand fast. Otherwise, if you're just trying to stand fast and you don't have that revelation he's made you steadfast, you are not going to stand fast for very long. It's just not going to happen. Eternal glory in Christ. Again, not contingent glory, not fading glory like Moses had on him, not departing glory like Ichabod had on him. It's eternal glory in Jesus Christ. Am I in the word? Grab a hold of that truth. We have eternal glory in Christ. Christ. Now, religious people won't like what I just said here. I'll probably get some email somewhere along the line. I'm telling you what, I'm in the Word. Unlike Robert Barker and Martin Lucas, believers will never have to pay for their fines. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says this, yet God with undeserved kindness. You know what undeserved kindness is? That's what it is. It's grace. Undeserved kindness, unmerited favor, undeserved kindness is grace. And it says right there, it says, yet God with undeserved kindness declares that we are righteous. He said, I am righteous. It's a hard thing for some people to wrap their, their head around sometimes, but I'm going to tell you what, when you get that truth established in your heart, what you'll find is, again, you are no longer afraid of anything. 
you're no longer afraid. People that have been martyred over the years, I, I'm telling you, I can't think of any worse way to go than be burned, man. I mean, man, drown me or do something to me, but don't burn me. They had the opportunity right at the end to deny Christ. Then they were told by their captors, if you deny Christ, we'll let you live. And they said, we can't do that. Why? Because they were established in righteousness. There was nothing to go back to. Okay, I, I can either endure this flame for a couple of minutes, or I can go over here and go to hell forever. It, it wasn't even really so much about that. It was, it was, listen, I'm established in the love of God. I'm established in the faith and the grace of God. So, he says, yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. How did he do it? Through his ever increasing grace in our hearts. We have a higher position than the royal printers of London. You know what the Bible calls us? Royal priests. And you know what? Believers can never lose their royal priesthood. Never. Never ever can you lose that royal priesthood. I love what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says. It says, but ye are a chosen generation. Watch what he calls you. He says, you're a chosen generation. And then he says, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. I don't have one foot in darkness and one foot in light. It's just that it's not the way it works. Either you're all in darkness or you're over in light. And when God called you out of darkness and he said, listen, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a peculiar people. I believe it. I just receive it. I believe it. I walk in it. Amen? Oh, man. God doesn't leave us that way. And you know what? We stand in grace. And, and clearly in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where I spent a lot of time, it tells you that. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. How do we stand? We stand fast. How do we stand fast? Because God has made us steadfast. Do you see how that's all connected? Isn't that a treasure to see that? Amen. Now, I want you to listen to what King David said in Psalm 51. Now, David is going to go south. He starts off really well in Psalm 51, but then he gets very, very sin conscious. And I felt the Lord say to me, this is where, unfortunately, a lot of believers are at. They're, they're walking around sin conscious, and we don't have to be sin conscious. We don't. David starts off right. Here's what he says in Psalm 51, verse 1. He starts off by saying, have mercy on me, O God. That's not a bad prayer, is it? Have mercy on me, O God. Then he says, according to your unfailing love. What is he saying? He's saying, as I'm asking for mercy, he says, first thing I do is he said, I put myself in remembrance of your unfailing love. He said, not my performance, not my kingly deeds. He said, I'm putting myself in remembrance of your unfailing love. And then he says, according to your great compassion. Now watch what he does. He says, blot out my transgression, wash away all my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sins. See, now he got sin conscious, didn't he? Purify me from my transgressions and my iniquities and all my sin. And then he says this. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Now, here's the way that God put this picture in my mind. I can see King David, Nitol is not working for him. He's not getting his Z's. Valerian root's not kicking in. 
And I can see that king up at 2 a.m. in the morning and he's walking the corridors of his stately palace underneath his chandeliers. The only people awake at this time are just his guards on the front of the castle. He said, my sin is always before me. I messed up. I did something greater than leave out a three-letter word. I committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he said, it's on my mind. I can't seem to shake it. And so you know what he did then? He thought, hmm, she may have gotten pregnant. So let me think here. Oh, I'm a brilliant king. I know what to do. I'm going to get her husband Uriah home from the army. He's out there in the battle fighting right now. I'm going to bring Uriah home on a weekend furlough. And I'm going to say to you, Uriah, I want you to go spend the weekend with your wife. I want you to go stay with your wife. You know, you're really one of my good soldiers and you've been doing a great job, boy. But when Uriah comes home and he summons to come before the king, he comes before him humble. He says, yeah, king, what's, what's up? He said, Uriah, I want you to go spend the weekend with your wife. And he looks at the king and he says, what? He said, all my fellow soldiers, my brothers are out there on the battle right now, standing for you right now, and you want me to go stay with my wife? He said, there ain't no way. He said, I'd rather sleep on your cold marble floors than to go spend the weekend in my warm bed. And that's exactly what he did. And so now the king's plan is foiled. So what does he do? He takes and orders one of his army men to take him to the front line of the battle the next day. And Uriah the Hittite was killed in battle. So now not only does David have this adultery on his hands, now he's got this plot of murder going on. So you can see why he's always got this stuff on his mind because there's no way to wash it off. I mean, in the Old Testament, it was sin by sin, lamb by lamb sacrifice, and that's the way it worked. We're under a different covenant. We're under a covenant where our sins were forgiven, past, present, and future. Yes, when we mess up, we, we go before the Lord and just say, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. I, that, that is not the true me, God. That is not my true nature. He says this, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Verse 5 and 6 are pretty powerful verses. Now watch what he says. He says, surely I was sinful at birth. And then he says, wait a second. I'm, let me back up a second again. He said, I was actually sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Do you see it's a nature issue? But you don't have that nature anymore. You don't have that nature. So God doesn't see that sin in your life and my life. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, sinful from the time Adam's domino fell into mine and caused that reaction right on down the line. I love verse 6. He says, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. And surely you would think the inner parts must mean the heart, doesn't mean heart. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place, which is the secret place. When you look up in the Hebrew, the inner parts, I mean, I'm not kidding you. You can go home and do it. When you look up, look up the words inner parts, it literally says the kidneys. I'm like, the kidneys? Surely you desire truth in the kidneys? It's in the Bible. It's in the concordance. And I thought, Lord, what do you mean the kidneys here? You know, one thing I know about the kidneys, I don't know much about them, but one thing I do know about them, they carry away waste products. And truth and waste can't stay in the same place. Jesus carried away our waste product so that he could desire truth in the inward place. When Jesus, the God of truth, took up residence inside you and me, he carried away our waste products once for all, our transgressions, our iniquities. He carried away that three-letter word called sin. Your sin and lawless deeds, he says in Hebrews chapter 10, 
I will remember no more. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, the Bible says, He himself took our sickness and carried away our diseases. Listen, anybody that's interested in carrying away your diseases, that's all sin is, it's a disease, right? That encompasses that. He himself took our sicknesses and carried away our diseases. Back to Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Consequently, just as a result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Now, verses 20 and 21. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. Now, when you read that scripture, the first thing you're left with, wait a minute, now the law, they're talking about the Mosaic law, they're talking about the Ten Commandments. And in the word it says, the law was added for this reason, so that the trespass might increase. You're like, wait a minute, trespass is sin, right? Yeah, that's, that's sin. That it might increase? He didn't give us the law so we'd stop sinning. The law's purpose was never to stop sinning. And the law's purpose was never to make us righteous. It wasn't designed to make us sin less. The law's purpose was designed to point to a Savior. It was to condemn us and say, listen, you fall short of God's glory. But once we come to Christ, remember Romans chapter 6, verse 14, we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased. Now I want you to see this picture. Sin, sin, increase, sin, sin, increase, increase, building, building. It says, but where sin increased, it says grace. Grace increased all the more. Where sin kept increasing, grace said, oh, no, no, you are not outdoing me. Where sin increased, grace had to increase all the more. It had to increase all the more because it's an ever-increasing grace. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love the lesson that the Apostle Peter learned firsthand about the magnitude of this ever-increasing grace when he came up to Jesus trying to trap him and asked him two quick questions. He said to Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, he said, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? That's the first question. And before Jesus could even answer the question, he asks him another one. He said, up to seven times? And Jesus in 18.22 says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times times. Now, 77 is not a 7 to the 7. It's a 70 with a dash, a hyphen, if you will, and 7, which means 70, seven times. 70 times 7. 70 times 7. 490. But it's not, he's not getting at a quantity here. What he's telling you, he says, listen, 7 is the perfect number for rest. And he was saying, listen, the only way you can truly rest, the only way you can truly rest is when you know that your sins have been taken care of once and for all, forever and ever, you and I will only find this rest as we become established in the true grace of God. What is the true grace of God? Eternal glory in Christ. It's an ever-increasing grace. Well, with the time I've got left, what I want to do is I want to take you on a little journey, and I want to show you a couple of places in the Word where you see this ever-increasing grace. So in Luke chapter 18 is where I want to begin. Verse 35 as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting beside the roadside begging. Let me say something here. You and I are no longer blind, right? We even sing that song, I once was blind, but now I see, right? I, I can see now. 
See, Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus was asking some crazy questions, he said to him, he said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You're going to remain a blind man. Oh, you'll be able to see through life as you go, but you can't see spiritual things. So, here's this blind man. When he heard the crowd going by, now this is the blind man. He's got good ears now. Nothing wrong with his ears. They're like radar, man. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked, what was happening? They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David. Watch this. Have mercy on me. The same way that David started off with Psalm 51. It's a good way to do it. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more. I love that blind man's spirit. I don't know about you. Remember when I preached that message called Blind Man Seeing? It's, it was about the blind man that Jesus healed here. Uh, go back and listen to it sometime. But I love his spirit. They told him to shut up. And he said, Son of David, have mercy on me. Cried all the louder. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see. Why do we make it so complicated? Listen, you know, I, I know, listen, I've been a part of prayer lines and stuff like that, and they'll just tell you the whole story. Yeah, my, my lens got detached, and, and, you know, I had to, you know, because I put a stick in there one day, and it doesn't matter. I want to see. That's all this guy got to the point. He didn't have to give him any history how this happened. Might have been born that way. Probably was. He, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? He said, I want to see. And you know what? Five or six years ago, I began to cry out, God, I want to see this message of your love. I want to see this message of your grace. There's more to this religious circle than what I'm getting. There's something that's been hidden from me somewhere. I want to see. And I'll tell you what, when you pray a prayer like that, I'm going to tell you something. That veil will be torn wide open and you will begin to see. You're already beginning to see. He said, I want to see. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus. I love this. Immediately he received his sight. Follow Jesus, the Bible says, praising God. And then it says, when all the people saw it, this is the entourage that's following Jesus. When all the people saw it, the Bible says, they started praising God. I'm telling you, this message is contagious. This message that God loves you, Michelle. God loves you and he wants to put his arms around you at all times. He's crazy about you. This message is contagious because the whole world wants to keep beating you down. Oh man, God's going to get you now. No, God is not going to get you. God's going to give to you. Oh man. So when the people saw it, they began to praise God with him. He was ecstatic, wasn't he? You know what? I'm going to tell you something. Living the God kind of life is very contagious. Very, very contagious. People are looking for it, man. I can hear the cadence. I can hear the cadence of shouting as they're coming into Jericho and the praising as Jesus and his disciples and the former blind man and all those, that crowd or whatever, are entering Jericho. It no doubt caught the attention of a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Some of you may have heard me tell this story some time ago, but I remember about four years ago when my son graduated, my son Tyler graduated from the Army boot camp in AIT. I flew down to, to Georgia to watch him graduate at Fort Benning. And they took all the parents and the family, the wives, out to this enormous grandstand, multi-tiered grandstand. They're, 
there were 600 soldiers that were graduating that day. And at a certain time, those soldiers were to appear. We were looking over this, this big field. And on the other side of that field was a big woods. The time came and the soldiers are not there. I thought the army was supposed to be on time, but they weren't on time. We're like, where's our soldiers? That's what we were, I could hear people saying, where's my soldier? Where's my soldier at? Couldn't find them. But all of a sudden, in the quietness of things, I don't know what the world they were saying. And pretty soon you could hear them faintly in the distance. And then they came around that corner of the woods there, all marching in formation, man, singing whatever song they were singing. And I couldn't help but help but think, one of those 600 voices is my boy. One of those voices is my boy. And if I would have been like Zacchaeus, I would have said, where's a sycamore tree? Because everybody was standing and you were trying to see and they all looked the same. And it was really, t- it was tough to try to find. And it took me, in fact, I couldn't even find Tyler. Someone had to point him out to me. I'm like, that's Tyler? Man, I would have been like Zacchaeus. So I understand when this cadence began to roar as they began to come into Jericho. I understand the excitement that was building. I, I was there at one time. I did that. Oh, man. You see, all I wanted to do that day when Tyler was graduating, all I wanted to do was get a glimpse of my boy. Yeah, I I care about you, 599, but where's my boy? And through that whole ceremony, I didn't care about, I was glued to my boy. Let's look at Zacchaeus' story. It's a story of ever-increasing grace. It begins in Luke uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Remember, he healed the blind man on the way in. Now he's passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and his name is actually pronounced Zacchaeus in the Greek. Zacchaeus. We'll call him Zach man. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Come on, everybody knows Zacchaeus. I could probably sit down behind this piano. I'm not kidding you. And uh, just start this up, and I'm sure you'd recognize it. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. He climbed up in sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Sorry about that. And as the Lord came passing by, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, come down. For Okay, I, I'm sorry, I got off on a tangent there. But you, you remember the song, right? Now, when's the last time you sang that song? Long, long time ago, right? But it's still stuck in you, right? We all have heard this, this story about Zacchaeus, but they, they, when you read it and you tell it, you, usually you miss out all the real bullet points of Zacchaeus. I'm telling you, there's a lot of them, and I can only share a few of them with you today. But Jesus is wrapping up. Here's what I know. This is in Luke 19, and Luke only has 24 chapters, and Jesus hadn't been crucified yet, so you know he is working his way. He's on his final descent to his cross, isn't he? It's about to take place. And he passes through Jericho for the last time. What did the blind man and Zacchaeus have in common? So simple. They both wanted to see. They wanted to see. The blind man wanted to see the light of day, and Zacchaeus wanted to see the light of the world. Either way, they're both Jesus. He is the light of day. He is the light of the world. Friends, Jesus is the master at helping us see, and he does that through acts of ever-increasing grace. I love what Jericho means. It means his sweet smell. His sweet smell. You know what? I'm going to tell you something. I can tell when a minister has the revelation of the finished work of the cross. There is a sweet fragrance that comes off that word. There's a sweet fragrance that comes off that anointing when you can tell that, yes, in the end, he's going to point me to a finished work. He's going to point me, not to a bunch of things I need to do, but he's going to tell me what my Jesus has already done for me. 
So the question I want to ask you, and I had to ask myself the other day, why? Why did Zacchaeus want to see Jesus? And there were four things that popped in my head. Was he curious? Was he furious? Was he delirious or was he serious? You know, see, he could have been curious. What is all this noise about? What's all this noise about? He might have been furious. He's like, hey, nobody's following me. He might have been delirious. He might have finally just lost his absolute mind and said, I mean, I'm just a delirious man. But I believe Zacchaeus was very serious. You know what gives me the hint is because the Bible says he ran ahead of the entourage and he climbed the sycamore tree. This is a grown man. This is a tax collector. First of all, men did not run. Do you ever see any story in the Bible with Jesus running? Grown men didn't run like that. They had robes. And in order to run, you had to lift your robe up. Otherwise, you would just trip. It would be like a, in, running in a gunny sack. And you would, you would lift up your robe, which was totally undignified. And then on top of that, the dude climbs a tree. This is how serious he is about seeing. Otherwise, if he was just curious, he'd be like, oh, that, that's all it was. Some guy coming through here. No, that's no big deal. You know, he was serious about seeing Jesus. Tax collectors were hated. They were despised and rejected by the Jews and even some of the Roman citizens. They were scoundrels and cheats and um, lowlifes, really. They were shunned to the max. In verse 3, it says, He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short in stature, we're talking, right? He could not see over the crowd. You see, the tug of war that was going on in Zacchaeus' heart as he was experiencing in his heart nothing less than the ever-increasing grace of the Father drawing him to his Son. God had made that arrangement. That was not by accident. God looked down and said, Zacchaeus, listen, I specialize in tax collector. In fact, we got one with us right now. His name's Matthew. No problem. I'm going to take and I'm going to draw you in your heart. You won't even know it's you. It's the same way he did me the night I got saved. And that is exactly what he did. So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, I mean the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay. So we have reason to believe that Jesus probably spent the night that night. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. As I tried to let this picture develop in my head, I had to come to the conclusion Zacchaeus wasn't wearing a hello, my name is tag. Zacchaeus did not have Zacchaeus embroidered on his robe. And so when Jesus looked at him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, I can only sense that in Zacchaeus' heart was, you know my name? What else is it that you know about me? You know my name? Nobody will talk to me in this town. In fact, when I'm walking down the sidewalk, they'll walk around, not even look at me, but you call me by name? Can you imagine the flip-flop that's going on in his heart right now? It's got to be awesome to the max. He knows my name. He knows things about me, but he still wants to come and stay at my house. And as you read the story, what you'll see, you'll never see Jesus condemn this man. The Bible says it's the goodness of the Lord that leads a man to repentance. And so all we can believe is, is that Jesus went to his house and was just absolutely good to him when nobody had ever treated him good. 
Zacchaeus. What does his name mean? Surely it means scoundrel, misfit. What does his name mean? It's got to be something really negative. It's Zacchaeus. You want to know what his name means? His name means pure, clean, and righteous one. Oh, man. Are you kidding me? When is the last time you think he heard his name called? I mean, usually we don't call ourselves by our own names. How ridiculous would that be? Walking up to my boss and say, hey, you know what Mark thinks? He'd be like, Mark who? Me. And so when he called him by his name, Zacchaeus, pure, clean, righteous one, what Jesus is, what I think the point he's really wanting to drive home in here is you may see yourself one way based upon your performance, based upon your lifestyle, based upon what you believe, but God always sees you a different way. He sees you as pure all the time, clean, in spite of what you're doing, in spite of what you've done. It can't get much worse than what Zacchaeus was doing. His name does not fit his character and his actions. But neither does ours at times. But it doesn't change the reality that we have an eternal glory in Christ. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner? They're talking about Jesus now. Ooh, man, glad I wasn't one of those disciples. I'd have had somebody up against the sycamore tree. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, Look, Lord, this, he's already at his house. Jesus has already ministered to him, you know, some way of, of sort. And he stands up and he's with excitement. He says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, and believe me, he did, I will pay back four times. You know what he just did? He just said, I'm going into bankrupt court. Because he's saying, if I ever cheat him, <laughs> oh, he cheated everybody. Are you kidding me? And now he's got to pay him all back four times. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. If there was any man that should have had his license revoked, it was Zacchaeus. If there was any man that should have been fined, it was Zacchaeus and forced him to pay restitution. If there was any man that should have had his reputation ruined, it was Zacchaeus. This narrative, as I was reading it, I want to tell you what, it encapsulates so much more. And you begin to ask the, yourself the question, what is the essence? What is it that you want us to see out of this story, God? Is it restitution? Really? Is that what you want us to see, restitution? I mean, it's in the storyline, but I don't think that's the main point. Is it salvation? Yes, I mean, God wants us to see that, that Zacchaeus got a brand new heart that day. He wants us to see that. But the essence of the story is God's ever-increasing grace poured out on a renegade by the name of Zacchaeus, a man that was wicked to the max, so that the scripture could be filled, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1-7, through 7, we find these words. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha. She said, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. Now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. And Elisha looked at her and he said, how can I help you? <laughs> I love that. How can I help you? He says to her, tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. 
She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God and he said, go and sell your oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Let me just give you kind of a snapshot of what is going on here. Here's a woman that's married to a man. They've got two sons. He is sitting under the ministry of Elisha, the prophet. He's in the school of ministry. Don't know what happened to him, but he died. And in those days, there was a debtor's prison. If you owed somebody a debt, they could put you in jail. So what they would do, if you died prematurely, what they would do is they would come after your sons because they could take them into as labor and make money off them. And so this is what she's getting at. She's saying, okay, they're coming to get my two boys. Elisha says to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? You see, by her own words coming out of her mouth, this is why I always, I always say, watch the words that come out of your mouth. By her own words, he can tell that she lacks faith. She's already painted doom and gloom. There's nothing beyond this. This is what's happened. Groom, despair, and agony on me. And now they're going to come and get my two boys. My cake is really getting iced. And Elisha says to her, all right, let's start from scratch. Let's start with what you can see, okay? Let's start with something you do have, okay? What do you have in your house? And sometimes what we have to do is we have to go back and we have to remind ourselves. This is why it's so important to remind yourself of what God has already done for you. Not just what you, you're thinking about what he's going to do for you in the future. Let's remind ourselves like David did when he said, you're merciful to God. Your love is unfailing. You're compassionate. I've seen you do this in my life time and time again. And so that's what really what Elisha is doing there. He's saying, let me, let me put you in remembrance. Let's start with something you do have. He said, what do you have in your house? He said, all I've got is a little bit of oil. That's it? <laughs> no problem. We can start with oil. So as you can see by me reading that story, there was a miracle. It was a, it's a fascinating story. Uh, but a miracle took place. And she was able to get enough oil. I think everyone in this room can probably identify with one or more of the pressures that this lady was facing the loss of a loved one, the imminent bankruptcy and the creditors knocking on your door, the threat of more loss on the heels of an already unbearable loss, empty cupboards and empty hearts. I want to ask you this question, what is the essence of that story? Is it about getting out of debt in three easy steps? <laughs> Ask, pour, sell? That's really easy, isn't it? Ask your neighbors for jars, pour the oil and sell it. That seems It's not about that. Is it about expanding your comfort zone? It takes a, an expansion of a comfort zone to keep knocking on somebody's door, you know what I'm saying, and asking for something? Not about that. Is it about finding favor with your neighbors? Not about that. Is it about, man, if I just get one strategy from God, that would change everything? It's not about that. Is it about the ever-increasing oil? No. It's not about the ever-increasing oil, friends. It's about the ever-increasing grace. You see, because in the absence of ever-increasing grace, you won't have any oil. She had some oil to start with. In the absence of ever-increasing grace, you won't have any vessels to put it in. You won't have any neighbors. You won't have all the blessings of God. You won't have anything in the absence of this ever-increasing grace working in your life. Amen. Now, Matthew chapter 20. There was a man that went out in the marketplace to hire workers. The Bible says he went out early in the morning. The working day started at 6 o'clock in the morning. He was looking for workers, and he went out in the marketplace, and he saw some people standing around doing nothing. And he said to them, I want to hire you to go work in my vineyard. He said, I'm going to pay you a denarius, which was equal to a penny. 
I'm going to pay you a denarius for 12 hours of work. That was good money back then. They all agreed, and they signed a verbal contract. At 9 o'clock, the man realized, I don't have enough workers, and he went back out into the marketplace, saw men standing around doing nothing, and he hired them. Now, this is the second time he's went out. The Bible says the landowner went out the third time at noon, the fourth time at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and then at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he went out for the last time. So he made a total of five trips. You can already see the grace, can't you? He made five trips to the marketplace. And so the people that he hired at 5 o'clock, they only have to work one hour. And he told him, he said, listen, I'm just going to pay you what's fair, okay? And so they all went. And then at 6 o'clock, the landowner, said, he called his foreman. And he said, I want you to gather the workers. He said, I want to pay them. But he said, I want to start with the ones I hired last at 5 o'clock. I want to pay them first, going on to the next ones that were hired. When you look at this picture, the landowner is God. The vineyard is Christ. He is the true vine. The foreman is the Holy Spirit who goes out and brings people back to the vineyard, brings people back to Christ. That's all that you see in this picture. And the workers are you and me. It represents humanity. And so the guys that only work for one hour, that foreman reached in his pocket and handed each one of them a denarius. Now the guys that have been there since 6 o'clock in the morning go, oh, hey, we agreed to work for a penny, but I just saw the guy that worked for an hour get a penny. So in my mind, that means 12 pennies for me. He's changed his mind. Oh, believe me, the landowner wanted the foreman to do this in front of those people so that they could see something. But when you get down to asking the question, is this story about how to run a small business? not about how to run a small business. Is this story about employing the unemployed? Absolutely not. Is this story about working hard in the kingdom? And when I looked in my Bible in the margin, I've had the same Bible since 1999. It's my favorite Bible. This is just how I I used to think 10, 12, 15 years ago when I wrote that in there. I wrote that in there. This is about going out and working for God. We need to be, I literally, it said in my margin, you need to be knocking on doors and, and all this stuff. It's just the mentality. You see how God has changed my heart? It's not about what we're doing. The whole point of the story is to show you how generous God is. That's the whole point of the story. It's to show you a grace that you can't even hardly believe. Let me just read verses 13 through 15 and we'll be done. And so they're, they're complaining. The guys that were hired first, when all they got was a denarius, they are complaining now. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. I love the fact that he called him friend. Shows he is in the kingdom. I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious that I am generous? Or another way to say it, are you envious that I'm gracious? Are you envious that my grace is ever increasing? the ones that bore the burden of the work because that's what they said. Hey, we bore the burden of the work and the heat of the day. So that's why they thought they were entitled to more. And I felt the Lord say to me this right here. That's how it is sometimes in the body of Christ because we think we work more because we're bearing the heat of the day and we're working more hours for God that we should be entitled to more. And this is a picture, friend, if there's ever been one of God saying, let me show you what it's always been about. It has always always and forever been about not just grace 
but ever-increasing grace. I want to thank you, Father, that it will cause us as we read the Word of God to continually say, I'm looking for the grace of God. I'm looking for this ever-increasing grace. And Father, in some of the most awesome stories, we can find the ever-increasing grace of God. Daniel found it in the lion's den. The three Hebrew children found it in the fiery furnace. Thank you, Father, for this ever-increasing grace. Now, Daddy, I've delivered the word in Jesus' name. Marry that in our hearts with faith. And Father, we thank you when grace and faith come together, they produce life. And we bless the people. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.